I'd ask you to turn with me in a Bible, if you can see one, to the book of Daniel chapter 3. And I wanted to go to Daniel this evening because I think it's one of those books in the Bible that is of incredible relevance to the days in which we find ourselves living today. And I think this incident of the three friends and the fiery furnace and their refusal to bow down to the image that Nebuchadnezzar sets up is one that has a huge amount to teach and instruct us with. So we hear from God's Word, from Daniel chapter 3, beginning to read at the first verse. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, this is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, 
zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him, and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. 
Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Amen. And we thank God for his word. Let's bow together and ask for God's help as we turn to it. Father, we live in a world where so many voices call out to us, saying, bow down and worship or else. Father, we ask that you would speak to us now from your word and give us real courage so that we will take our stand and say, like these godly men of the past, we will only serve the one true and living God. Father, left to ourselves, we lack that kind of courage. And so we ask that your word would come now and do its work in our hearts. Please may it give us strength. Please may it give us conviction and a real desire to take our stand firmly on your word and nowhere else. Father, speak to us now, we pray, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few moments ago, I said that this book of Daniel is one which is so relevant to the days in which we live today. For the people before Daniel's time, they lived in a culture where everything around them was there to support and encourage them in their faith. That's what it was like if you were living in Jerusalem, in Judah, in the promised land. All the great institutions, they were designed to help you to be faithful and loyal to the one true God. But now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel as well, have been taken into a completely different world, one really alien from the one in which they were raised. When you're living in Babylon, the government, education, and the arts are suddenly now completely pagan. And I think that's relevant to the situation in which we live today. We used to find ourselves in a situation where so much of our culture was there urging us on to be faithful to the one true God. And now it seems as if everything has changed and all the institutions of society are tugging at us to go in a different direction and to worship other gods. And this book of Daniel has the power to teach us how to live for God in a secular, unbelieving world. Tonight, I want us to look at three things. First of all, the pressure to bow down. Secondly, the faith to stand tall. And then finally, the promise to those who are in the furnace. So the pressure to buy, the faith to stand tall, and then God's promise to those in the furnace. So let's begin with verses one to seven, with that call, all the pressure to bow down. 
little bit of context. In the previous chapter, God sent King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon a dream. And Daniel had come along and he had interpreted it for the king. It was a king, a dream all about a great statue. Some of you will remember it. Nebuchadnezzar was the golden head of the statue. And then that Babylonian head would be replaced by various world empires, each of them represented by different metals of silver and bronze and iron and clay. And eventually, all those empires were going to be destroyed. And what we read here in chapter 3 is Nebuchadnezzar's answer to the dream that God sent him. And it's the age-old response to God's words of accepting the pieces of it that we like and then reinterpreting and explaining away the parts of it that we don't like. You see, when Nebuchadnezzar received that dream, he had no problem with being presented as the golden head of the statue. But he wasn't that keen on the idea of thinking about his empire being destroyed and being passed on to other empires. And so Nebuchadnezzar decides that he will respond with a new, improved, and more progressive take on what God has said in his word. He doesn't set up a statue that looks like the one that he received in his dream. Instead, he sets up a huge statue that represents all the values and the beliefs of Babylon. And it's massive. This statue that he sets up is 90 feet high. And this statue surpasses everything that he saw in the dream tells you a lot about how this king viewed himself. This statue is golden from head to toe. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, my kingdom, the glorious Babylonian empire, is one which will last forever. Nebuchadnezzar says, no stone will ever come and smash into the base of my statue and destroy it. The statue is nothing more than a defiant response to the dream that God sent him. It's as if the word of the Lord fell on deaf ears. Nebuchadnezzar is a man who resisted God's revelation. He built the statue to say, there's only one empire. It is my empire and my rule will endure forever. And so it's not a surprise at all that he sets this huge statue up on the plain of Jura in Babylon. It goes right back to Babel. It recalls man-made religion set up high in a proud boast of defiance against the living God. Well, invitations were sent out to all the leading officials right across the vast Babylonian empire. Anyone who was anyone was assembled for the unveiling of the image. 
It was a great orchestra with all these different instruments who were there and tuned up, designed to add pomp and prestige to this ceremony. The herald announced that at the given signal, everyone was to worship the golden image. It was all, we'd say in modern language, highly pluralistic. No one was told that they couldn't worship their own gods. As far as Nebuchadnezzar was concerned, you could do whatever you wanted to do in the privacy of your own home. What Nebuchadnezzar wanted was that you would also bow down and worship this image. You were free to worship as long as you didn't worship your God exclusively. And for Nebuchadnezzar, this made sense. The Babylonian Empire was vast. And he thought this is the way to unite all the people together under one man-made religion. And the threat of persecution was there all the time. Anyone who would not conform would be cast alive into this fiery furnace. And so our three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, faced a tough choice. Were they going to bow down or would they stand tall? Takes great courage to stand against a pagan culture. And the courage to take your stand does not come naturally. It's excuses which are present in our hearts. Those are the things that come so easily. We can dream up a hundred different ways to rationalize and explain away the fact that we don't take our stand. We can say to ourselves, don't, don't we have to adapt to our context? Everyone else is buying. Surely everyone would realize that we were only reluctantly following orders. We had to do it because it was part of our job. Maybe the three friends thought to themselves, this is only an empty ritual. It means nothing at all. God knows our hearts. He knows what's on the inside. Maybe they were tempted to think we've been given great positions of influence. We've been put in a really strategic place. Why would we jeopardize all that influence by refusing to worship? They might even have thought, if we kick up a fuss, it's only going to make things far worse for our fellow Jews here in Babylon. It was a tough choice, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego determined that they would be loyal to the one true God, the God of Israel. For them, all of this was actually very straightforward. The beginning and the end of the matter was with the second commandment. They simply could not conform to this idolatrous and blasphemous command. The threat to bow down was really strong and yet they refused to bow the knee. Do you see how this speaks to us in our world today? Because we feel that pressure to bow and conform 
to the idols. Not simply the idols that are found in each one of our hearts, but also the idols which are out there in our society. Our society tells us that there are certain gods that we must bow down and worship. And again, it has the same sort of pluralistic ring to it as what happened here in Babylon, because we are told that you are completely at liberty to worship your own God in your way, as long as, as well as that, you worship the idols that are put up in public. We're told we must bow down to the secular, materialistic gods of our age. We're told it's the only possible way to hold our diverse society together. We're told it's the only way that we can stay at one. And all the power of our culture, its music, its art, its architecture, its laws, are used to bolster that call to bow and worship. And sometimes the image or symbol that we are to bow before may be a distortion of something that God has given in his revelation. Remember what happened with the statue God had given Nebuchadnezzar the dream? And Nebuchadnezzar took the dream of the statue and he came up with a progressive take in it. He took part of a symbol from God's word and then he gave his own interpretation of it. A bit like the rainbow, isn't it? Something given to us in God's word, and yet a symbol that we're told that we must bow before, which is given a new and progressive interpretation. And this worship is endorsed by the great and the good of our day. We don't call them these names, but we have our own satraps prefects and governors, and they make their pronouncements to us in the media, in social media, in parliament, in the chat shows. We are left in no doubt that there will be real consequences for refusing to bow down and worship the gods of this age. It might not be the fiery furnace that we face, but it might be a grilling by the HR department. It might be ridicule on social media. It might be dismissal by your friends for refusing to accept a progressive agenda. And here in Daniel, when the hour of decision came, everyone bowed except for these three men, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. They do what no one else was willing to do. They must have felt very lonely and very exposed as they stood in that vast crowd. And they knew the consequences. They had been spelt out in detail. And yet they kept believing and confessing, even when their culture and the authorities of the day threatened them. It's a challenge for us. We'll encounter moments exactly like that, times in which we have to take our stand and refuse to bow 
and resist all the pressure to conform. So that's the call to bow down and worship. Let's think next about the faith that enables people to stand tall in verses 8 to 18. Now, some of the Babylonians had it in for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men had been promoted. They occupied some of the great offices of state. And despite the Babylonians bowing down in worship, they somehow managed to notice that these three men had not bowed, and so they bring the matter to the king's attention. We read in verse 8 that this was malicious. They intended to denounce these men in order to harm them. They wanted to destroy the reputation of them with a pretense of showing their loyalty to the king. Can you hear their animosity in verse 12? There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. These Babylonians had fixed their eyes on these people who held these top jobs, these men from Jerusalem, and they tell the king that they won't bow down. Well, when the king hears about this in verse 13, he flies off into a rage, he's furious, and the three friends are hauled in before the king to explain themselves. And in verse 14, King Nebuchadnezzar is incredulous. He asks, is this true? I elevated you to these senior positions, and is this how you repay what I've done for you? But interestingly, he's ready to give them the benefit of the doubt. He says to them, I'll give you an opportunity to conform, but if you don't conform, you'll go to the flames. And then rather sneeringly, he comments, and what kind of God will be able to deliver you out of my hands? So the pressure is on for them to capitulate and to fall into line, but they take their stand, and in verses 16 to 18, they deliver a remarkable speech. What they say here is awesome. And it's particularly striking because they speak these words right in the face of death. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were staring at the door of a very hot furnace, and they were defying the most powerful man in the world. They knew that they were absolutely and totally helpless. They knew that there was nothing that they could do to save themselves, but they also knew that they belonged to a God who was absolutely trustworthy. And so even in front of that fiery furnace, there's no panic, there's no desperation, there's no pleading. They have great calm and poise. The first thing that they say in verse 16 is that this is something that they don't actually have to give an answer to the king about. When it comes to the matter of worship, they are answerable to a higher authority than the earthly king of Babylon. They knew that their ultimate allegiance was to someone else, the true and living God. And then secondly, in verse 17, 
As they speak, they tell us that they know their God. They clearly trusted that he had the power to deliver them even from the furnace. God had done it before. When God's people had been in Egypt, in the iron furnace of slavery there, God had rescued them. And so they knew that God could do it again. And thirdly, they didn't presume or demand that God would rescue them. They're not trusting God for the one particular outcome that they desire. They're simply trusting God to deliver them as he knew best. If the outcome was uncertain, there was at least one thing that was certain. They would rather die than bow before the idol and betray their God. They'll walk with God in obedience, whatever the consequences. Their thinking was clear, and it was courageous. They're full of faith. They have the courage to stand firm. One last point this evening, in verses 19 to 30. And it's a good one for us, because if we feel the pressure to bow down, if we hear the call of God's word to make sure that we stand tall, well then finally, we're gonna need to know the promise that God gives to those in the furnace. Let's go back to the story. They make their speech, and when the king hears it, his face instantly changed. He boiled over. The king was apoplectic. He was intent on making an example of these men for their lack of conformity. And so he was determined that they were going to suffer. He was so consumed by rage that the only thing that would satisfy his burning anger was a red-hot furnace. So the order's given, crank it up, heat it higher, heat the furnace beyond what was safe. Some of his henchmen tied up our friends and bundled them into the burner. And the fire was so intense that these mighty men tasked with escorting them to the execution died in the very process. Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have been even remotely phased by the death of just a few servants, but he was absolutely astonished by what happens next. It's the twist in the story that we know and love. Many of us are so familiar with what happened from our childhood that we can miss the complete astonishment of what happened. Nebuchadnezzar didn't miss it. He got up in haste. He got as close to the oven as was safe. And shielding his eyes from the heat of the fire, he called for his advisors because he could not take in what he was seeing. He said, how many were thrown in? Wasn't it three? His servants agreed. The king says, how come I can see four figures in the flames? And they weren't scrambling to get out. They were walking around in the fire. And as for the fourth figure, to Nebuchadnezzar, he had the appearance of a son of the gods. Who was this figure? An angel? That's what the king thinks in verse 28. It's likely that this is a pre-incarnate epiphany 
of the Son of God as the angel of the Lord. And the king immediately capitulated. This could only be the work of the Most High God. And so he shouted into the furnace, calling the three to come out from the fire. And when he examined them, it was obvious that this had been a powerful miracle. Their bodies were unharmed. Their hair had not even been singed. And they didn't even smell of the fire. It's remarkable, isn't it? We know how the smell of a bonfire or a barbecue, it sticks to your clothes, doesn't it? Well, these officials come out and their uniforms have been perfectly preserved, surely a sign that God intended them to continue to serve in that capacity. The only thing that had been destroyed were whatever ropes or chains had been used to bind them. They were rescued from death and they were restored to their former position. And Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged the uniqueness of the God of Israel. Only the Most High God could deliver people in this way. And in typical Nebuchadnezzar style, the king issued a decree that no one should speak against the God of Israel because he alone can rescue in this way. What took place here was a miraculous confirmation of what God had promised he would do when his people went into the furnace of affliction. Through the prophet Isaiah, John started our service with these words from chapter 43. God had given his people a very specific promise about what would happen to them when they were cast into the fire of exile. When you walk through the flames, you will not be burned. And what took place here was a massive encouragement to believe the promise of God of what would happen to them in the furnace of exile. When the people of God found themselves in a very different situation, in a whole new world, they could be very sure that God had not given up on them. They hadn't ended up in this new strange position because God had forgotten his promises. No, instead, this miracle showed them that they could be certain that God would be with them through the fiery trial and he would deliver them in his own miraculous way. God's promises for bringing them into this situation of great pain and trial were good. Do you remember what Israel was like before the exile? Before they went to Babylon, bowing down to idols was one of Israel's greatest besetting sins. No matter how often the prophets warned God's people, they kept going back to bow down before idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold. It beset them in the promised land. They kept looking to other gods. And so the Lord 
put them into the furnace of the exile. And through that experience, they were changed and transformed. After their time in Babylon, the Jewish people permanently turned their backs on idols of wood, stone, and metal. And we need to know that God's promise is to be with us when we go through fiery trials, whether they're fiery trials that we encounter in a very personal way in our lives, or whether they're fiery trials that we encounter as the people of God in this world. God will be with us, and his purposes for bringing us into hard days are good ones. So often God's way is not to deliver us from the trial, but it's to deliver us through the trial. So if you're in the furnace of affliction, know that God's purposes are good. God's at work to deliver you from your idols, to rescue you, to change and transform you. And how can you be sure How can you be absolutely confident when it feels as if the furnace is very close and if you get any closer, you'll be burned up and consumed in only a moment? How do we know that these promises are true? Well, we have a greater reason to be confident than even the people who witnessed this remarkable, miraculous deliverance. That fourth figure who was with them in the fire, offered a foretaste of a far greater deliverance. The one who was with them there prefigured the great salvation that one day would be revealed in all its fullness. A heavenly son would come and walk through the flames of pain and suffering. And Jesus Christ came to deliver his chosen ones from a tyrant far greater than Nebuchadnezzar. Jesus Christ came into this world to deliver us and save us from sin and death itself. And as he went to the cross, Jesus Christ was thrown into the ultimate furnace, the fire of God's wrath, And he walked through the flames of death and he emerged victorious on the other side. That tells us just how committed God is to his own. And when you really know that, it'll give you the help that you need to resist the calls to bow down. When you know the gospel of what Jesus has accomplished for us, it will bolster our faith to stand tall in a pluralistic world. It'll give the courage to stand up even when it brings us into the furnace of affliction. As the heat is turned up, we can have this conviction that God's purposes are good. If he's bringing us into a new world where everything looks different, It's not because he's lost control of his church. Instead, it's because he is going to refine his church and purify it. So we really become like these three friends, those who have the courage to stand tall, even when everyone around them 
is calling them to bow down and worship a different God. Young or old this evening, we can trust our God that even in the furnace, he will be with us and his purposes towards us are only good to change, to transform and refine. Let us pray. Father, there are so many calls from within our hearts and within our world to bow down and worship other gods. And Lord, we ask for your mercy because so often we are willing to bow. Please forgive us. But Father, in our changing world, give us the courage to take our stand even when it's difficult and costly. And Father, grant to all your believing people a great confidence in their hearts that even in the furnace, you will be with us because you sent your son to die and to be raised on our behalf. Lord, you are absolutely committed to us. Help us to respond with real commitment to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.